Voice Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and incredible interviews uh, like today to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of holograms in times of Instagrams. I hope you are having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I know I did. Today is a big day at Device Nation as we conclude our interview with National Treasure orthopedic icon, one of the eight wonders of the world, Dr. Larry Dorr. So we left last week with a cliffhanger. Uh, asked Dr. Dorr, what was the one innovation? And he's had so many, but what was the one that stood out to him as being the one thing that he was the most proud of? And the answer was? Operational walk. I guess that's not a technical innovation, but that's the innovation that's probably helped the most people because it helps the surgeons and nurses and PAs and technicians and everybody that goes on the trip. It helps them as much as it helps patients. Everybody gets so such a good feeling out of it, you know. Sure. So um, that's probably, in terms of overall humanity, that might be the best thing I, I did. I'd say after that, I mean, if you want a technical, I'd say the APR hip because it really was a good hip. When you design an implant or a device that's going to go into people, there's always a little bit of hesitancy and anxiety because if it doesn't work, you know you've hurt people, you know. But on the other hand, when it works, then uh, you've sure extended your ability to help patients far beyond what you can do in your own surgeries, you know. So the APR, when once we finally got it right, it helped an awful lot of people. So for that, uh, I, I would say that's probably technically my favorite. That hip spine stuff is just amazing to me. A dear friend of mine who's with a competitive company was talking with me about a patient that they had. And AP implants just looked absolutely perfect and kept dislocating, kept dislocating. No spine hardware in, but the patient had autofused. Sure enough, they took a seated x-ray, and and that was where the mischief was coming from. Has this been in front of us all along? Yeah, no, it hasn't hasn't been seen all along. I mean, that was one thing Charlie missed. He He didn't ever think about it or talk about it or write about it. You know, nobody in the 80s or 90s thought about it or talked about it. You know, I mean, the first one that ever really brought it out to the four was DJO. He won one of these Hip Society Awards in 98 talking about the spine and the hip, but uh, it's just kind of crazy. It's like I've said many a time, you know, I, I did total hip replacements for over 30, 35 years and and uh, I never thought about the spine <laughs> influence right. and how the hip was working, you know, I mean, but but it's all one unit, you know, the uh, the pelvis and the hip joint are definitely one unit. And if the spine gets stiff, it influences that unit. So you got to understand it all. And you definitely have to understand it to understand dislocation. And, uh, you know, late dislocations are happen because of the whole s- structure gets stiff. You're right. It's, it's kind of weird that nobody ever thought about it or put it together, but uh, kind of been a big topic for the last five years. Put on your uh, your prognostication hat for a second. Where do you see joint replacement going over the next 10 years or so? You think there's a, a breakthrough that's going to make it all seem barbaric, or is it 
just going to be fine tuning some things and no no i think frankly now that this covid things happen i don't think there's going to be much anything happens yeah. for 5 years the next 5 years are people just trying to get out from under what yeah. happened with this you know i mean medicine's broke and uh you know the i was talking with richie orio and uh he was telling me that at harvard you know they lost 80% of their income for three straight months. Well, you know, you can't do that and get it back, you know I mean? So the, the companies lost a lot of money because they didn't sell implants, so they're not going to have a lot of research money to give away. And I just think there's going to be a lot of pressure on medicine. I think that there'll be less service for patients because doctor's offices aren't going to be able to afford to have many people working there. I think there's just going to be a lot of people who are going to give up on thinking about doing revolutionary things and trying to survive, you know? When you started your career, could you have ever envisioned uh, outpatient hip and knees? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. When I started, we brought them in two days before and kept them two weeks, you know? And then I started doing outpatient surgery in 2004, 2005. And for 10 years, I was the only one doing it in LA. And I did it because Rich Berger, uh, came out to the master series and did a patient and brought the patient with him from Chicago and sent her home the same, same day he did her. You know I mean? She didn't stay in the hospital and I turned around to my people and I said, well, we can do that. So I started doing it. I would never thought about what happened though. No, nor would I've thought so much about small incisions. That was another thing that I didn't envision. I, I wasn't the innovator there, but I, I was the early adopter. If you go to Malcolm Gladwell, you know, you got the innovator, and then you got the early adopter, and then there's a long break before the early majority starts doing it, you know. And I did jump on it right away, and I was doing it before everybody else, but somebody else had the original idea. So, you know, the surgeons coming on board right now, you've been doing this for a long time. If you were sitting down with them in today's environment, what advice would you give them? What would be the main thing that you would tell them to, to be focused on? Think there's a couple of things. If I really wanted to uh, make a name for myself in orthopedics right now, there's two things I'd work on. One, if I was interested in basic science, which I never really, I wasn't too hot for that, but if, if you had that bent, you could uh, go into cartilage and try and figure out cartilage and how to understand it, because that's something we just don't understand. But the other area, if you're if you're more into stuff like I like, is I would get involved in virtual reality and holograms. And I was involved with that four years or so ago. Zimmer in their booth, they had this little corner back in the corner of their booth. They had this little room where you could go in and you could put the goggles on and you could see what holograms did. You know, you could see the surgery table. You could see the instrument. I don't know what Zimmer's doing on now, but I did see in the literature that they've done the first virtual reality surgery and the first hologram surgery. You know, it just, just in the last month they did those. So it's happening. And uh, that's, I'd get into that. You don't really need any different implants than we have today. The implants obviously work very well and you can get 30, 40 years of what we got if you do a good operation. So now what the deal is, is do a good operation. So I think that the big uh, big names in the future are going to be the ones who design the precision surgery the best, you know. Funny story, you can do a knee 
with this virtual reality headset, which I think is just amazing. So I, I'm a total geek at heart, and I took it to the OR to one of my uh, geek-friendly surgeons, and I left it with him, and I had to walk out of the lounge for a second to go get something, and I came back in, and he was he's like six foot two anyway, and he was standing on his tippy toes with his hands as high up in the air as he could be uh, with these controllers and this headset on. And I'm like, what, what is going on, doctor? He said, I messed up the registration and I'm in the OR, but I'm only three feet tall. <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm trying to <laughs> drill a hole in the femur and I can't reach it. <laughs> it was absolutely hilarious. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's definitely, it's definitely the future, you know, and, you know, I mean, the training for surgeons are going to go that way because cadavers are mm-hmm. expensive and hard to come by and you can train them on that. And, uh, and the advantage of it is they can do it over and over with a cadaver. You get one shot at it, you know what I mean? So I saw a picture of you online with another surgeon beside a robot. Uh, speaking of innovation, what do you see on the horizon with that technology? You think uh, it'll be completely ubiquitous in a few years or what, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I did start that too. I, I stopped at Mako on my way back from a meeting I was at and, uh, I think I was in Barcelona and, uh, or India, one of the two places. Anyway, I stopped in Florida and met with them and told them they were going to do knee and I talked them into doing hip. We did, we developed the hip program. And of course, you know, with that hip program, they were able to sell it to Stryker. It, it's going to be ubiquitous. Yep. I mean, uh, there may be some combination of it and, holographic exposure, you know, because a hologram allows you to see the, all the tissues and the relationships of them, you know, and, but you still kind of need to get the implants in. So I, they might combine the two. Precision of surgery, as I think I mentioned a little earlier, if you wanted to get into the area where you want to make a name, that's, that's what I'd get into. I think that's the big deal for the next 10 years. I, I do think it's going to be very hard to do anything implant-wise. They're just in a money or, or there's, you know, there isn't even the, uh, the desire to do anything, you know, because of the situation. I, I agree. COVID has just taken all the oxygen out of the room. Yeah. Uh, hospitals, at least where I'm at, they're just trying to get by day to day and it's just not like it was. Uh, the conversation about orthopedics isn't at the forefront right now and it's just a COVID sized hole in the ground financially. And they're just trying to figure out how to shovel dirt back into it. Yeah, they, uh, you know, almost every hospital, they make most of their money off surgery. And they, a lot of them haven't been able to do elective surgery. So they're way in the hole. When you're in the hole, why you don't, you don't have much vision. Wow, that's profound. That's good. You recounted, this has nothing to do with orthopedics. I just wanted to hear this story because it was just amazing to me. You had this story about, plexiglass, the FDA, and a surgeon named Ridley. Can you share that? Oh, yeah. Well, that's uh, cataract surgery. And I, I probably the number one surgery done is cataract surgery. I mean, those eye guys, they do 10 of those in the morning. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a really common surgery. So the way that started was that Harold Ridley was in in England, and he was an ophthalmologist, a surgeon during the World War II, and he made the observation that the airline pilots would get uh, bullets that would come through their plexiglass windshields of their planes, and it would blow the plexiglass into their eyes, 
But the plexiglass in their eyes, there was no reaction around it. He saw, you know, he didn't see any inflammation. It was uh, it just the tissues clearly didn't dislike plexiglass. So he came home from the war and he worked with a company in in London and he made these lenses. And in 1949, he started putting them in. And of course, that was magic. And, and cataract, they'd had such a history. The, the Indians used to take a stick and just poke the eyeball back so that the lens would get pushed to the back of the eye. Everything was, you know, it was very poor vision, but they could see better. And so, I mean, there were all kinds of primitive treatments for cataracts. So this was a big deal to, to have the ability to put in a lens and give people clear vision again. But he did it without any experimentation. He just designed it and started putting it in people. And he did it without talking to any of his colleagues. And the guy that was head of, of ophthalmology in England was a big, big guy. He had a, a lot of power. And it pissed him off. He blackballed him. This guy in England had a really good friend who was head of ophthalmology at Northwestern. And so the guy in Northwestern blackballed it in the United States. <laughs> so here was this operation that was so good for people. But because of personal animosity among two powerful medical leaders, it didn't see the light of day for a long time. And so we're talking about 1949, he put the first one in. The FDA had turned it down a couple of times. It came up in front of the FDA again in 1980. This guy from Northwestern was all ready to kill it in front of the FDA again. Well, there was a surgeon out here in L.A. who was a, just a community surgeon, ophthalmologist, that was putting these lenses in. And he'd put them in um, Robert Wagner, the guy that was uh, played uh, Marcus Welby, Dr. Marcus Welby on TV. So he told Wagner, he says, you got to come with me back to the uh, FDA, he said, because we got to be able to get this approved and you can help me. So they went back to the FDA together. And the night before Wagner went out and got drunk as a skunk and he comes in the next day and still kind of hung over in front of the FDA and telling him about the lenses. And he says, you know, he says, I can see clear as a bell now. He said, now I was blind. He said, and if this treatment is good enough for America's doctor, it's good enough for anybody. And well, that got into the front page of the Washington Post and a bunch of congressmen saw it and the congressman forced the FDA to approve it. And so it was the, oh, Marcus Welby, a, a, a TV doctor is the one that got it approved by the FDA. It's kind of a fun story. You think about the fact that for 30 years that never got approved just because there was personal animosity, you know. And now it's probably the most prevalent operation done. That's an amazing story. Speaking of stories, many years ago, a surgeon told me a little bit about the Kunchner nail and what he went through and how that nail ended up in our hands over here and forever changed uh, long bone fractures. Do you know much about that story that you could fill us in on? Yeah. So Kunchner, he was a, he was a German... Uh, surgeon and he, he, his practice was clear way up north. I think it was in a town called Kiel, K-I-E-L, way up north, far, about as far north as you can get in Germany. He designed his nail. He worked on it. He realized uh, that made it that cloverleaf shape because he had to leave it open enough to compress going into the bone if it had to. And he developed the technique for putting it in with a closed technique, just making an incision above the greater trochanter 
pound it down. This was in pre-penicillin days because he was doing it, you know, the end of the 30s, early 40s, and the German surgeons, they were all over him. They they gave him all kinds of grief, just kind of like they did Charlie when Charlie had all those failures with his hip. But, but he was a really good surgeon. It was a closed technique. He didn't get very many infections. And so he went into the Army. I think he was initially stationed uh, with Rommel over in uh, Africa, but he ended up operating on several American soldiers because they were prisoners of war. And so he would, he taught all these younger surgeons in the military that were under him. He taught them all how to do it. So there were several guys doing it and they were doing it on prisoners of war. They probably were using them as experimental patients, but they did them. And so these guys came home. And they had this rod in their leg, you know, and they got x-rays here at home and nobody, nobody knew what was going on, you know. And so then uh, one of the British surgeons took a Jeep right after the war because he wanted to find out about this rod. He took a Jeep, went through Germany and Germany was still disrupted because of the war. And he filled the back of the Jeep with cigarettes so that he, the way he found uh, Kunschner is he kept passing cigarettes out to people to ask him where to go, you know. And he brought about 10 of the rods home from uh, Gunchner and started getting them made in, in Britain. And that's how they started getting put in, in the outside of Germany. And then, of course, uh, they worked real well. So uh, it got popular. And in 1968, Gunchner came over to the AAOS meeting, uh, the only time he ever did. And when they introduced him, he got like a five-minute standing ovation. So in the end, he, he took all that grief from the German surgeons, but he got his got a little bit of a reward in the end. He he definitely uh, gave confidence to surgeons to doing fixation for fractures. There's no question about it. I I heard bits and pieces uh, about the DNA story, and I, I know just enough about it to mess it all up. So tell me. Uh, tell me that story. I, I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, so the DNA story, uh, mostly in England, and uh, it, right. And after the war, there was a lot of, uh, they were trying to figure out how cells work. There actually was even some controversy about the nucleus of the cell, and they were using this special x-ray technique. And there was, in one hospital, I think it was King's Hospital, there was this research lady. Her name was Rosalind Franklin, Rosie, they called her. And she was really good at this technique. And she's the one who actually discovered the double helix. She saw it for the first time. And she has this famous photograph that she took of it. Well, at Oxford was Watson and Crick. Well, Watson was an American who'd come over there to study. And he was abrasive and kind of obnoxious and and wasn't real popular at all. But Crick was the British guy and, you know, the typical British, and he was popular. Those two were hooked up, though. And Watson was smart as, as, as could be, though. And they were trying to figure out the DNA, and they were working with the metal parts and putting them together and taking them apart. Well, Watson found out about Rosie's picture, and he went over to that hospital. He basically stole it from her. And he came back, and he made the DNA sequence on these metal parts. And they figured it out. One morning, they got it. It all came together, and bang, they got it. It was in February. And of 1953, 
And Crick was really a kind of fun guy. And every day for lunch, he went down the street to this pub, the Eagles pub, and had swinging doors to get in it. They'd figured it out that morning. He went down there at lunch and he threw open the double doors, threw up his hands in the air and announced to everybody in the bar, he says, we've just discovered the secret to life. And, and he really believed that. And they thought they were going to cure cancer and everything else with it. But, uh, that's, that's how it came about. So when it came to the Nobel prize, Rosie didn't get, didn't get it. Those guys got it, but she couldn't really have gotten it anyway. She died very young from uh, ovarian cancer and you can't get the prize if you aren't, if you aren't alive through history. Now everyone has recognized her contribution and she gets a lot of accolades now and then. They've named stuff after her in England, you know, there's a Rosie Franklin Award or something, but she was the one that really did it. Watson and Crick get all the credit, mostly because Watson smuggled it away. <laughs> I had a great conversation with uh, Dr. Roy Crowninshield. Uh, oh, Roy, the, yeah, gee. The Bill Nye of uh, orthopedics. And uh, we were talking about what the biggest breakthrough in orthopedics has been over the last 30 years, and I think we both agreed it was Crosslink Poly, and I was just wondering if you agreed with that or if there was something else out there that you thought was just as, uh, just as big. No, I think that's probably about it. I think that was, uh, I think for sure, for total joint replacement, that's it. I, I don't know what the spine guys would say or foot guys would say, but uh, boy, for, for joint replacement, that was huge. It really was. I remember the early days of going to meetings and just the, the conversation seemed to be dominated by osteolysis. And then one day it just kind of disappeared and we were all on to other things, right? Yeah, you just don't, you know, I mean, with that crossing poly, you're just not seeing osteolysis. And uh, you're right, osteolysis was making revisions, a horrible operation. And now it just, you know, the revisions aren't that. They aren't done as much as they used to be done. You know, all the projection for all these revisions that were going to be done through time. And I, I don't think it's going to happen. There's going to be a lot fewer than they expected. I introduced you as Dr. Larry Dorr, but there's also a Lawrence Dorr, the author. Uh, how did you get into writing fiction? And uh, tell me about the books you have out there. And is there any more uh, books in the works? Yeah, well... Uh... You know, I was an English major in college, and I was part. Of, I wanted to go to medical school, but I knew I was going to be in science the rest of my life. I loved literature and English, and uh, I worked with one of my English professors there on creative writing. And I always told her somebody had told my wife I was going to write the great American novel. But uh, you know what happened was, uh, of course, I never had time to do any of that. But then, you know, when the DOJ came in and shut all the companies down. And what was I, 08 or 09? And uh, so all of a sudden, the research money was dried up and activity meetings were gone. And there I was, I had this time. So I told my wife, I said, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to try writing that book I was always going to write. That's how I ended up writing that first one. And I had to pay a lady a lot of money to teach me how to write it because people don't like to read science when they go to bed. And I had to learn how to write novelistically, which is a lot different writing. And I wrote that first book and then I I did write a sequel to it. You know, I retired from surgery last June, so it's been a year. So uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm into it now. I got three books going and one with an editor in New York, one with an editor here at LA. The one we're just, the one in LA, uh, we haven't started it yet, but we met with her for three months, giving her all, all the data and history and everything. We're going to do the Operation Walkbook with her. Then I'm actually doing another one on Charnley. 
So I've got three books going. What, what was the name of the first book you did? The very first book I did was Die Once, Live Twice. And it was about medicine from the Civil War to World War II. And the name of the, ti- the title is because, you know, in those days, if you got sick with infection or whatever, you died because there was no treatment for it, you know. And then when penicillin came along, it gave people a chance to to be um, cured and live again. So that's where the live twice comes from. So it was it's just about how medicine be, became a profession because we really couldn't do much for patients until until penicillin, and then that opened everything up. Penicillin opened everything up because it opened up the ORs, you know, and once you could do surgery without infections, surgery became more prevalent. And uh, it opened up the ability to have vaccines because they tried to grow the polio virus and other viruses, and they couldn't do it in the lab because bacteria overgrew it and, and they couldn't isolate it. Well, they started putting penicillin in with the polio cultures, and they were able to culture the polio virus, and then from that, they could make a vaccine. So you hear a lot about Salk and the Salk vaccine, and but the guy that won the Nobel Prize for polio was actually John Enders, who was a Harvard PhD that uh, isolated the virus by putting penicillin in with it. That's why penicillin is the most important advance medicines had, you know, and maybe someday there'll be a gene stuff that'll overtake it, but. Up until today, I mean, uh, we have medicine that we have today because they finally figured out an antibiotic. And, of course, penicillin being the first one, it becomes the most important achievement. I worked with a surgeon who was a huge Civil War buff, and he had a big gun collection and just all memorabilia from the Civil War. And he took me on a kind of a private trip to a Civil War museum that a friend of his had. And the, the guy asked me, what did I do for a living? And I thought I would be real cute. And I told him I was a, a phloem salesman. And he said, you mean a fleam? And then I thought, oh, my gosh, my, I totally blew the punchline. I, I knew that those blades that they used for bloodletting in the Civil War were called fleams. But I <laughs> totally, totally botched it. Yeah. It's yeah. it, isn't it amazing that it really wasn't that long ago that we were bleeding people. Oh yeah, uh, for 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 therapy. Well, so. the only surgery in the Civil War was amputation too. I mean they they didn't know how to save anything. They just cut it off. Isn't that where they discovered? Is it carbolic acid? Yeah. Well, carbolic acid was Joseph Lister. You know, I mean right. he. So I mean he's memorialized with Listerine mouthwash, but Joseph Lister was the one who first found antiseptic that would kill germs. It was around 1860, same time as the Civil War, over in Europe. And Pasteur was isolating the germs in Paris. Lister figured out that phenol would kind of accidentally, I think he, he, he found out phenol would kill bacteria. Phenol is carbolic acid. So he started using carbolic acid on all his wounds and on skin before surgery and everything and his infection rate of course went way down so uh there's another fun story about that because halstead the surgeon in america he was a believer in carbolic acid and antisepsis his scrub nurse was allergic to the carbolic acid so he went to goodyear and rubber and worked with them and developed a surgical glove and so surgical gloves were initially developed to save the hands of his scrub nurse had nothing to do with trying to get sterility at surgery, you know. 
it obviously evolved into that, but he initially did it just so his surgery nurse could stay with him. And he ended up marrying her too, but, um, that, that was how the gloves started. It was, and it was because of allergy to that carbolic acid, but carbolic acid was the lister finding that changed things so much too, because, uh, it allowed you to sterilize the skin and that's the lister story. I have a lot of sales reps that listen to this program, Dr. Doerr, and you've worked with people on my side of the table your whole career, and I was just curious if you had any advice to them over your history in this business. You know, what were the traits that separated the really good reps uh, in your room? Well, you know, I think it's not a lot different from anything in life. It's the ones who cared the most did the best, you know? I mean, uh, oh, that's great. because that's if great. they cared the most, they they were the best educated they understood the operation, you know, I mean, they, I think that they were closet surgeons, you know, <laughs> and, um, wish they were doing the operation rather than standing there helping guys that didn't know what they were doing. Cause that they did. There are a lot of surgeons that got dependent a lot on their, on their rep. So I, I don't think there's any secret. There's no real secret to success in life, except hard work and passion you know i mean if you do really love what you're doing and you you want to get good at it you get good at it and because you just stay with it until you are you know i mean i came home from watching as i said and i didn't have any good surgery training in residency and i go to special surgery get my eyes open i only did like 14 operations in my fellowship because it there weren't fellows in those days. I was the only guy out of my class who went to a fellowship. You know, they were, fellowships were rare in those days. Now today, everyone takes one. But and so it was more, uh, you know, you were behind the residents. They did the surgeries and you held a lot of retractors. So I came home and I had this picture in my mind of this operation. Like Rano, I did it. I just worked on cadavers as much as I could for two to three years until I could get better you know i mean I, I had that deep desire to be good i figured if i'm going to be a surgeon i want to be a great surgeon not just a, not just somebody that operates and so you know that's what it is you just you, you gotta you gotta have the drive that you want it and then you gotta go do it you obviously have that drive gene and i, I put gene in quotations uh, because I'm curious, is that something that you think can be taught? Is it a function of early environment, or is it just baked in us from birth? What do you think? I don't know. That's a really good question, Kevin. My grandma, Dora, had like 30-some grandkids, and uh, we used to have door reunions. And I remember I remember standing at one in this little town of Claycorn, Iowa. It's probably 300 people, where which is the where the Dora family farm, the original family farm was. And we were at the park, and all those little towns had a park with a bandstand, but they had a little softball, little softball field too. And I remember a bunch, a whole bunch of the grandkids were out there playing softball, and uh, my uh, uncle Harold, who was the kind of the patriarch of the family, the old, the oldest brother, and, and by that time I was married, so I was probably either in medical school or out when, when we had the conversation, but we were standing there and he said to me, he said, you know, look at all these kids out here. He said, uh, they've all got the same genes that come from, you know, same grandmother. And he said, but there's only one or two of them that'll ever 
do anything great. He said, why, why is that? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I mean, I don't know medically that anybody knows. I said, uh, I do think it's a combination of genes and environment. You know, I, I think it's both. Uh, there are a lot of people that are really smart that don't do anything because they don't have the, they don't have the environmental work ethic, you know? So I think it's both things, but I don't have that answer. My uncle asked me that question 40 years ago, I bet. And, uh, didn't that, I didn't know the answer then. I don't know it now. So looking back over your career, doctor, I mean, is there anything you look back on and say, I, you know, I would have probably done this different or were you pretty happy with the way everything turned out? No, I don't have any regrets. Uh, I, I, uh, I had a great career. It's really hard to sit back and say I'd do things different. I don't think I would because uh, things turned out very well. You know, I mean, I got, I got a great marriage and a happy home life, and, and I made good contributions to orthopedics. And uh, with Operation Walk, I made contributions to humanity. So I, uh, I don't know what I'd change, you know. You know, you're out of the OR. You're living life at its fullest right now, I guess. So what are you, what are you up to? Well, I play golf on the weekends, and uh, during the week I'm writing. That's it. You know, I got those three books going, and uh, with editors, they they always have a million questions. I still am doing a lot of reviews for journals, and I've still got a couple of research things going on. The last real big thing I ever did was that hip-spine stuff. We did just have that article in JBGS in June on television. Uh, incidents and we've got another one coming out in journal of arthroplasty so i still got my fingers in that a little bit but it's mostly head work it's mostly brain work i'm not really doing any physical work except golf but i like it because you know creative as i said earlier when we started that i kind of got the creative bug when i was a kid making up play and i still have it i creativity is my fun thing i stay busy it's just different it's a lot of sitting, unfortunately, because you're writing and thinking. But uh, I got a little workout shed in the back, and I go out there and work out. So just aren't doing quite as much stuff out in the social world right now because of this virus thing, you know. I mean, I go I go to the golf club. My wife and I go over there to eat with friends and things because, we, you know, well, nobody over there has got the virus, so we're not in any environment where we're going to get sick. And we both play golf. She's better than I am, but she's over there playing quite a bit. But I go on the weekends. And there's no other place to go because there's nothing else happening, you know? I'm going to get this put together, Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation. They're going to uh, transcribe it. They put my podcast out on their website, which is great. Y'all just have amazing stories that I want to make sure they get out there and people know the, the shoulders that we stand on in this business, right? Yeah, well, I think it's fun you're doing it. I think it's really a good service to do it, too, because I, you're right. The, you know, one of the things that uh, stimulates young people to to do big things is to hear and read about other people who have, you know. It just uh, it, it gets their juices going, you know. So uh, I think it's a good thing you're doing. What inspired me more than anything was talking to a young surgeon, and I said, I'm so excited I'm going to get to speak to Dr. Leo Whiteside this week. And he said, who's he? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I said, that that made what I yeah. was doing, it made me feel like it was more important than ever. Yeah, and Leo, I mean, he was such an innovator, too, and uh, he he led the non-submitted knee charge. There's no question about it. And, uh, and they ought to know his name. Yep. I made him a picture for his wall 
in his office that said, well-behaved surgeons rarely make history. And uh, he just loved that. He wasn't afraid to, to stand up and air his opinion on this or that in spite of the conventional wisdom, was he? He had a course, and uh, it was a good course Yeah, in St. Louis. Actually, it was at that course that I was at the faculty dinner. It was in 1989. I sat there next to Bombelli, and Bombelli was the one who taught me to use betadine in a wound, you know, and uh, he had he used it half strength, half betadine, half saline. So that's the way I used it all the time. They've been writing these articles about dilute solutions, but um, I mean, my infection rate was damn near zero, and I still think a lot of it's because of sitting next to Bombelli at that time and using that. But anyway, he told me one other thing I didn't use. He said, you know, uh, he had this, he had that crazy non-cemented stem that had a lot of holes in it and stuff. But he, he told me, he were sitting there and he says, you know, when you put in the stem, he says, if you want to know that you really got fixation, he says, you want to hear a crack. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't follow that one. I did debate it. But I didn't quite follow that one, but I mean, he was fun to sit with, but that was with Leo's course. And uh, so anyway, I said at Leo's course, one, one time on Leo's course, I said, well, I think the only thing I said, I don't think we've learned any more than the 10% from all this lab stuff. Well, that kind of made Leo mad, you know, because he, his lab was, was his big deal. But, uh, you know, we've been buddies a long time. I like Leo. Well, I think it was Thoreau that said some people do things that uh, that elevate them above the common, and, and you, sir, have done just that. And I am so grateful that you took time out to share uh, your inspiring story with me and my audience. Well, I appreciate you asking me, Kevin. It was nice of you to ask me. Wasn't that just awesome? Uh, Dr. Dorr as a storyteller is just simply peerless. I felt like Roy Scheider and Richard Dreyfuss in the movie Jaws when Robert Shaw, who played Quint, was uh, recounting the story of the USS Indianapolis going down. And they were just quiet. And here was a gentleman telling a story that had everybody focused on it, including the people watching the movie. It was just an amazing scene. And that scene played out for me during this interview, just to hear all the backstories and the things about medicine that I didn't know and Civil War medicine, just amazing, amazing stuff. We are so privileged to get a chance to to hear from him. I would like to take the opportunity on some future episodes just to unpack some of the things that he shared with us today. I think they're worthy of further discussion. One of the things that I wanted to leave you with just on today's episode was his word care. That was huge to me. Jumped off the page, so to speak. What is care? That that was the word that he said distinguished the good reps from the great ones. They cared about what they were doing. Painstaking or watchful attention. And the more I thought about that, what a powerful word. If you care, it, it everything flows from that, right? If you care about your marriage, then you're usually going to have a good marriage. If you care about your children, you're going to be a good parent. If you care about your friendships and tend to those gardens, then you're going to have good friendships. And if you care about the people at this job, that's going to stand the test of time. You're going to be a good rep. Because you care. It really all starts from there. So great word. So two great quotes on the subject. Uh, One by Margaret Mead, never believe that a few caring people can't change the world, for indeed, that's all who ever have. And one of my personal favorites, I don't know who wrote it, and certainly something you'll never see on a Hallmark card, but when you care about somebody, you do what's best for them, even if it sucks for you. (laughs) Good stuff. Good stuff. It's really about our care for people 
that stands the test of time. It's not the care over our inanimate objects as no matter how clean I get my truck and how perfect my tires are and nice and shiny, it's going to rain next week and then I got to start the process all over again. So it has no lasting value. It's all about painstaking or watchful attention over people, over people. So thank you for your watchful attention listening to this episode. So as we go into this weekend, let's all remember to take care of your stuff, take care of yourself, and most importantly, take care of those around you.